Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. If you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter and also to the book of Joel. 2 Peter and to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. You want to find Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. If you come to Amos, Obadiah, you've gone too far. It's right before them. Joel. Just hold that for a moment, and uh, let me just review to you quickly a couple thoughts as we come to 2 Peter. We've been in 2 Peter for a while. We've been going verse by verse through this important epistle. False teachers has been the major theme. Specifically, though, in chapter 3, we've been talking about the second coming of Christ, mockers, mocking it. False teachers are the mockers who are, who are mocking it because attached to the second coming is judgment and you don't want accountability. You don't want a God that holds you accountable to anything. And so you try to come up with a theology that gets rid of judgment. You come up with a theology that you can live with These false teachers are mocking the second coming, mocking the judgment of God that is connected to that coming. And these mockers have intimidated, no doubt, the the readers of the, the original readers of Peter's epistle, and he has sought ways to refute the words that are being said to them. We see that in verses one through nine as we refuted these mockers. And then we come this morning to verses 10 through 13. I don't know that I'll get through all that, but 10 through 13. And I think the key to this section all the way to the end of the letter is going to be the statement in verse 11 that says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In light of the second coming, in light of the end times approaching, What kind of people should we be? I believe that's going to be the theme of this section we're going to start looking at that begins in verse 10 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. But there is a term in verse uh, verse 10 that I will focus on this morning, day of the Lord. I'm going to talk about that in our time this morning, but just to review the context, remember last time we left off or we talked about verses 8 and 9 at the end of our time together. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact, let me just say this, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. There's some people that just think, well, he's taking too long. Yours truly, you know, he's just taking a long time, you know. And Peter's answer is, don't let this one thing escape you, verse 8, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. That's just a comparison. That's not a a method for counting days, okay? Don't get that from that verse. Just a comparison. God is not limited by time. He doesn't think in terms of uh, time. He's not finite. We're finite. He's infinite. He may work in time and doing things, but he is not 
bound by time. He does not look at it the way we look at it. And secondly, there's still some. Notice uh, verse, the end of verse 9. He is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There are still the Lord's people out there that need to repent. And that's why he is, has not come yet. That's why he is patient. And then that brings us to verses 10 and following, but it's coming. It is coming. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, verse 10 says, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the day of the Lord... What is that? You know that it has something to do with the second coming because that is the theme of the chapter. It's tied in with the second coming, day of the Lord. It helps us to understand the end. It helps us to understand God's plan for the end of the world. And I want to show you that from the Bible this morning. I want to take some time to show you that because it is a huge subject. And um, it's so much a part of what we have been seeing in chapter 3. And I want to put on the screen, if you would, this is our statement of faith. This is from our statement of faith. We've got like 12 things on our statement of faith. If you want to be a member of Grace Church, and those of you who've been through our membership class know uh, know this. You, it was very current in your minds, and our members know this. But if you want to be a member of Grace Church, you must be able to affirm that statement regarding last things. Keep in mind there are other things listed, the doctrine of God, the, the Holy Spirit, salvation, understanding of who man is and those things. But this is the one that's listed as well regarding last things. And it says, we believe in the bodily return of Jesus Christ. At the final judgment, the unrepentant will be raised to the resurrection of judgment and permanent punishment in hell. Believers, those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, will enjoy the everlasting personal presence of God in heaven. This is the hope for which we long, which motivates us toward godly living and propels us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. This is a cardinal doctrine of Christianity, what's on the screen right there. There's really nothing I would think any true believer would disagree with that statement. And that is what we uphold, that is what we affirm, it's part of our statement of faith. But that is not all that we teach at Grace Church regarding the second coming. Understand that. There are some other events around the second coming that we do not include in this document, but rather we include in another document that we have called the What We Teach document. And in that document, we don't say everybody has to affirm that because we recognize there are godly people Godly people who see some of those events surrounding the end times to be different. Doesn't mean we're not going to try to convince you of our view. We are. But the point is, 
But the point is, we understand that there's mystery surrounding end-time events. For example, let me just read to you from our What We Teach document or our doctrinal statement. We believe, we believe that Israel has a distinct and special future in God's redemptive plan. We believe that, that Israel is a key to the future. We believe that, the, that there's going to be an earthly, literal kingdom on earth one day. And Christ is going to return, and he is going to reign in that kingdom. That's called the premillennial view, coming before and setting up a kingdom. We believe we're living and teach. We teach this, I should say. We teach this. This is what the elders believe, but this is what we teach, that we're living in the church age. The church age began at Pentecost and will end with the rapture of the church. We believe that the rapture will come unexpectedly, uh, preceding a seven-year tribulation. We believe that Christ comes back to earth at the second coming and at the end of that seven-year tribulation. Uh, we teach the premillennial view of the kingdom, as I said, as opposed to the amillennial and postmillennial views. And we believe in the great white throne, throne judgment. We believe in a time when, when Satan will be bound and he will be set loose. We believe that there will be a great white throne judgment at the very end, preceded by a new heavens and a new earth. That's a lot of stuff that we don't say in the statement of faith. We say these things, these things are things we teach, and we recognize that everybody is not going to see these things this way. A lot of theologians who we love dearly and use their materials and read their books would see some of these things differently, and we recognize that. And we never want to make the what we teach the litmus test for fellowship. That is one thing we want to be very careful about doing because there is mystery surrounding these end times and what's going to take place. Now, I believe we have, do have convictions about all that I read to you. I believe we can support these things biblically. I really do. But we recognize that these are things that godly people differ on, and we want to uh, respect that, but we also are going to teach what we say in our uh, what we teach document regarding these things. So the day of the Lord, uh, when it comes to the day of the Lord, we're saying that uh, they, that refers to an Old Testament term that the Old Testament prophets use on many, in many places. You just do a word search of day of the Lord and see how many times it comes up in your Old Testament Remember I told you when we were studying verse 1 of chapter 3, in the Old Testament, there are th over 300 prophecies re uh, uh, referring to the coming of Christ, 100 referring to his first coming, and over 200 referring to his second coming. Day of the Lord is a term that's used surrounding the events of his second coming. Uh, the day of the Lord is also referred to as a day of doom, a day of vengeance. The New Testament calls it a day of wrath, a day of visitation, the great day of the Almighty. It's the word that Paul uses in First and Second Thessalonians as the, the day of the Lord, and Peter uses it here in Second Peter. When I say day of the Lord, I'm not talking about one event. 
I'm talking about the day. I'm talking about back in the day. You've used that term before. You're not talking about one day. You're talking about a series of days, a series of time. It's like in the day of Abe Lincoln. I'm not talking about just one day. I'm talking about a time. That's what we mean by day of the Lord. And that's what the Old Testament prophets meant. And some of the things I read off to you in the what we teach of Grace Church from our what we teach doctrinal statement, uh, we believe those are day of the Lord events. Uh, and and uh, we believe, which is not there anymore, but what we believe, we believe in, our, in our statement of faith, that is a, a day of the Lord event as well. So we're not talking about a 24-hour day when we say that. It's a technical phrase. Back in, one writer said it this way, it's a time when God will act, get this, to vindicate his people, destroy his enemies, and establish his kingdom. And it's going to be a time pictured as darkness and judgment. That's the day of the Lord. Stephen Collin and others have come up with some helpful categories. I'm going to speak from those categories this morning uh, just to, to use as a, a sort of an anchor of, to anchor my thoughts around. But this gives us insight into what this day of the Lord is, the characteristics of the day of the Lord. And I want you to follow closely with me, and I'm going to take you into the book of Joel primarily. I'll refer to other places, but I'll try to keep you in Joel so you're not jumping all over the place, okay? I'll try to do that. No promises, but I'll try to do that. Just turn in your Bibles to the book of Joel. To the book of Joel. Let me just give you these characteristics and you just look with me as we look at Joel. The first one's pretty obvious. The day of the Lord is always presented as imminent. Imminent. It means it's going to come like a thief. It means it's a surprise arrival. It's sudden, it's unexpected, and it's disastrous to those who are not prepared. That's the day of the Lord. That is how it's pictured. You read it, you see that over and over again. It will come uh, like a thief, and it will come um, without, without warning. Though there are warnings, but they will come when you don't expect it. That's what he says. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, let me just say something about Joel before I do that. We don't really know much about Joel. We know he lived in, uh, near Jerusalem in Judah, and we know he was a prophet of God. And we know that when Peter preached the first Christian sermon, he took it from, first, from Joel chapter 2. The first Christian sermon came from Joel the second chapter. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, Joel is going to use the day of the Lord as an alarm system designed to stir up repentance. You better repent. And he's talking to Judah and he's talking to the nations. Okay? You see it in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Joel? Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah says it the same way. 
Wail, 13.6 and following. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Ezekiel says it like this, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Obadiah 15 says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. I'm just giving you a sampling of how often it's used and how often it's spoken as of being imminent. Your dealings will return on your head. J.C. Ryle says, speaking on the suddenness, he says, People think they can just carry on like nothing's happening or nothing will ever change and men will be taken by surprise. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, Paul says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. No warning. You better be ready. That's the point. That's the point. First characteristic, it's imminent. Second characteristic, uh, we, we do, excuse me, the day of the Lord is always a terrifying judgment for the unrepentant. It's always a terrifying judgment. We can say that about it. Like I said, don't know much about Joel, the man, but we do know this. We do know that he was writing his prophecy. The word of God came to him just after a horrible locust plague had hit Jerusalem. A locust plague which came in and destroyed all the crops. A locust plague that came in and caused great desolation and fear among the people. A locust plague that came in and it was dark, it was cloudy, it was a horrible time and put great fear in people's lives as they watched everything be destroyed by locusts. That is what's on his mind, folks, as he talks about the prophecy regarding the day of the Lord. One missionary, a guy named Dr. Thompson, talking about the 1845 locust plague called the, that came to Jerusalem. This is many, of course, many centuries later. But he mentions a, a plague there, and he says they were flying everywhere. There was terror. He says, I was lucky to survive that thing. You think, you think of a locust plague in the eighth chapter of Exodus and covers the whole surface of the land. Every plant is stripped of anything green. And that's what Judah had experienced. Judah had experienced that when Joel sits down to write. And that's his springboard. That's his springboard for this prophecy. Go to verse 2 of Joel, chapter 2. He's he's making a transition from chapter 1 to now the prophecy, the the literal locust plague that took place. Now he's going to talk about the day of the Lord, and he's going to make incredible comparisons with it, okay? A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains. This is verse 2. So there's a great and mighty people. There's never been anything like it, nor will there again after it to the years of many generations. Zephaniah says this day of the Lord, there's going to be no hope or deliverance. There's going to be darkness and gloom. Same words. Same words. Same words that the New Testament writers pick up. Darkness and gloom, day of clouds and thick darkness. 
New Testament writers use those same words. We'll see that later. Go to verse 3 of Joel chapter 2. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but desolate wilderness behind them. You see, can you see the locusts doing, the, doing a number? But this is the day of the Lord he's talking about. We just saw that in verse 1. He gave the alarm. And nothing at all escapes. Um, comprehensive destruction. I read an article on locusts, okay, on locust plagues. The one in 1915 that hit uh, Jerusalem was horrible and horrifying. But one thing they noticed in a certain phase of those locusts invading the land was that the female locusts would land and lay eggs. And there they would repopulate really quick to the point where they were calling on young men 16 and older and older men up to age 60 to go out and dig up the earth to get rid of the eggs to somehow stop the intense um, pl- the intensity of the plague with more and more locusts being added to the plague. They talked about birds who would stand there and try to be ready. Oh, good, here comes a great meal. And all of a sudden, the birds are even overwhelmed by the locusts. You can picture that. Talked about uh, a beehive hanging in a tree and bees swarming around. Locusts would go up to the beehive, consume it, consume the honey, and consume the bees. Talk about just going up the bark of a tree and stripping the trees. That's destruction. Comprehensive and complete destruction. You see why he's using that. (laughs) Verse 4, you're back in Joel, Joel chapter 2, verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. MacArthur Study Bible footnote, excellent footnote on this, I think. The The locust has a head that looks like a horse. Horse's head. And horses were terrifying to people in this time because they meant they were instruments of war, weapons of battle. Verse 5, with a noise, with a noise of chariots, they leap on tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. That article said you could hear a locust invasion 10 miles away that loud. So, see, what was Joel? Joel is using the locust plague to amplify the warning and the nature and the horrors of the day of the Lord. Verse 6, before them the people are in anguish, all faces turn pale. Listen as I read from Isaiah 13 again. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Hearts will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. That's Isaiah 13, 6 through 9, if you're taking notes. When we come to verse 10 of, you're still in chapter 2, Joel, don't turn away from there. Joel chapter 2, verse 10, notice he says this, 
using in times language. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Verse 11, the day of the Lord, at the end of verse 11, at the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? See, the future is frightening. Nothing in history comes close to what I am reading to you folks. Nothing, nothing comes close. The final time will be climactic. It will be more permanent than the sum of all the other, quote, tribulations the world has experienced. And the reason, the reason for this terrifying description of judgment is because it's meant to stir up repentance. That is still the same purpose even today. As I am teaching 2 Peter, same reason to preach judgment is because the hope is to stir up repentance always. When you share the gospel with somebody, you want them to know the consequences of their sin apart from Christ. You want them to know that they are judgment and hell hangs over them unless they repent. This is in a bigger picture of all of that. Go to verse 12 of Joel 2. Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Notice, and rend your heart, not your garments. You know what they would do? Their tendency when they got upset was to rend their garments and not their heart. You follow me? Their tendency was to make it external. Oh, I'm in mourning. Oh, I feel sad. Oh, I'm upset. He says, don't do that external stuff. Do something deep in, within you. Rend your hearts. Rend your hearts. And not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. God is holy, his judgments are terrifying, but he is also gracious and ready to forgive those who come to him with a contrite heart. So, the day of the Lord, imminent. The day of the Lord is a terrifying judgment for the unrepentant. Thirdly, and this is, this is one sometimes people disagree on, but listen to this. The day of the Lord includes the restoration of God's kingdom. There are some that will say, no, it's just judgment only. No, it includes a positive aspect as well. It's sort of the package of the, of the deal. It's sort of like this goes with it. There is this judgment, but there's also a restoration that comes out of it. You don't have to turn to this either. This is in Obadiah. This is two, two books away. It's verse 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your head. He's talking to the nations. The day of the Lord's coming to you. Verse 17. But, but on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. That's Israel, my friends, that's Jerusalem. On Mount Zion, that's Obadiah 17, on, but on Mount Zion, there will be those who escaped and it will be holy. Day of the Lord is coming on the nations, but 
on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, it will be holy, and the house of Jacob, which is Israel, will possess their possessions. He goes on in verse 21 to say this, the deliverers will ascend to Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Interesting. It speaks of a kingdom. The day of the Lord and a kingdom comes out of that. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. You've got to tie these things together. You just can't ignore them and spiritualize them away. There is a day of the Lord coming. There is a judgment on the nations. There is going to be a sparing in there eventually of the, of, on Mount Zion. They're going to, many are going to escape, and there's going to be a kingdom, for Obadiah 21 says. You can read Zechariah 14.9, the same thing. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And Prophet Joel, you back in Joel still? Never left it, I hope. Joel 3. Prophet Joel explains what it will be like. Joel chapter 3. In that day, the mountains will dip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. This is 3.18 of Job. With milk and all the books, brooks of Judah will flow with water. Go down to verse 20. But Judah will be inhabited forever. Forever. And Jerusalem for all generations. You can read in Zechariah also, says, in that day, in that day, what day? The day of the Lord. In that day, I will pour out a spirit of grace on Israel. That's Zechariah 12, 10. I will pour out a spirit of grace on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Romans 11 says, there's a generation of Jews in the future who will be saved because God poured out his grace on them. Yes, the day of the Lord is a time of judgment, but it also brings about a restoration. That's my point. One of the characteristics of the day of the Lord it's, it's imminent, it brings terrifying judgment on the unrepentant, but though it is a terrifying event, it does bring about a restoration. Can you understand why in Acts chapter 1, the disciples turn to Jesus and they say to him, They say to him, is this the time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They ask Jesus that question. Is this the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? You know why they ask that? Because they read their Bible. They've been reading Joel and Obadiah and Isaiah and Zechariah where they've been promised a kingdom. And you're the king, must be the kingdom is here. Well, obviously not. You're about to die. Or you did die, and now you're rising again in that context. Ascending. So will your kingdom be coming now? They're still looking for what Joel told them about. And Isaiah told them about. And Zechariah told them about. That kingdom, the nations will be judged and then he will set up his millennial kingdom and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. 
The fourth characteristic, the day of the Lord is typically preceded by cosmic signs. You saw this back in Joel chapter 2. Still in Joel, look at verse 10 again. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. That's a cosmic signs that go along with the context we're talking about here, this day of the Lord. And that sounds familiar. You know why it sounds familiar? Because Jesus used those words in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. You can now do away with Joel for a while. We're not going back today. Go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. This is the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because it's spoken by Jesus to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Matthew chapter 24. In the context, he is giving them signs that will take place throughout history, signs that will uh, answer their question, what will be the sign of your coming, your second coming? And notice in verse 29 of Matthew 24, after the tribulation of those days, notice, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So where did Jesus get that from? He got it from the Old Testament prophets who said the same thing, including Joel. That's Matthew twenty-four twenty-nine. The day of the Lord is imminent. The day of the Lord is horrifying news for the unrepentant. The day of the Lord brings restoration, and the day of the Lord, uh, as we see here, is preceded by cosmic signs. Now, this next one gets interesting. This next characteristic. The day of the Lord, I'm going to break it down like this. The day of the Lord occurs two times. Two times. And I'll explain this in just a second. The day of the Lord occurs two times. At the return of Christ, uh, we see that in Matthew 24, 30. That's the first time. Notice Matthew 24, 30. This is at the end of a seven-year tribulation. Christ is going to return. He is going to set up his kingdom. All of this includes devastation and a glorious restoration. I just talked about. Notice verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Notice this is after the tribulation of those days, verse 29 says, Then the Son of the Man, is, Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of the Man coming. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 20 revelation chapter 20 this is a bible study this morning by the way a bible study revelation chapter 20 in revelation chapter 20 chapter 6 let me just say this we're going to talk about 20 but in chapter 6 all the way to halfway through chapter 20 uh, this is the first time of the day of the Lord has taken place 
in those chapters. That is a time of tribulation. We teach and we show you in Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 20 to the middle of chapter 20, we would say to you that is a seven-year period of time, tribulation, God's wrath is poured out on the world. We believe that that happens during that time. We believe that because the church is not mentioned one time in 6 through 20 and a half, the church is never mentioned, Israel is, but the church is not, that that time of judgment is not for the church. We teach the church is raptured before that. That's not part of my talk today, but that is something that we do teach. But you read 6 through 20, you will not see the church mentioned once. You're not even given any instruction in the church how to prepare for that time period. It's such a horrible time period. If I was the true, truly concerned about that, I would teach you how to survive the tribulation. But I personally do not believe that that is for the church. But I do believe that's the first series of events, the first day of the Lord, that time period. And all of that time period culminates with the return of Christ. You see that in 1911, verse, chapter 19, verse 11. You see that? Heaven opened up a white horse that's the second coming of Christ. You see that in 1911? Listen, remember, what is, this is Palm Sunday, right? 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. At the second coming, he is going to come as judge on a white horse. And he's going to come onto the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 tells us, and split the whole thing in two. Zechariah 14, you need to read those verses. Prophets say, 12, 13, and 14 of Zechariah. But you see that in verse 11, you see that in verse 14, that he's going to have armies with him. This is 19, chapter 19 of Revelation. Verse 15, a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He's going to uh, rule. Verse 16, king of kings and lord of lords. Go to chapter 20, at the beginning you see Satan is bound Chapter 20, hey, listen, I'm just following chronology, just doing chronology, 6 through 20, 20, 21, 22. I'm just doing chronology here. No mystery here, just chronology. Satan is bound in chapter 20. The millennial kingdom, see it in verse 6, he reigns for 1,000 years. And that, my friends, is what I'm saying to you this morning, constitutes the first day of the Lord. All of the events I just told you from Revelation 6 to right there, verse 10 of chapter 20 of Revelation. That's the first day of the Lord. The second one also has aspects of judgment and restoration. You see, judgment and restoration in the first day of the Lord he comes, you see the judgments of the tribulation period, and you see the millennial kingdom. The second day of the Lord also has judgments and restoration. Notice, in, beginning in verse 11, same pattern, same pattern. 
John's just witnessed all of this, the end of the millennial kingdom in verse 7, Satan thrown into the lake of fire. He comes to chapter 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Go down to verse 15. If any name, anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the judgment. That's the judgment. The great white throne judgment that follows the millennial reign of Christ. What's the restoration? Notice verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I love that chapter, by the way. You can go on down. There'll be no tears, no Death, no mourning, verse 4 says, no crying, no pain. See, none of those things in that restoration. So, I said to you, I got two days of the Lord's here. Now, some people would say all of that's the day of the Lord, and that's fine too. But I would say you got two days of the Lord for purposes of I'm trying to show you right now. I got two days of the Lord here. Which one is Peter talking about? In 2 Peter 3.10. Turn there. 2 Peter 3.10. In 2 Peter 3.10, that's my question. Peter, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Which one? We're talking about that time period of the tribulation and the uh, second coming of Christ. And uh, are we talking about this other one that's after the millennial kingdom? And brings in a new heavens and a new earth. I think it's obvious. I think it's obvious. But... The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then you go down to verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're talking about the second one, right? The second one. Revelation 20, 11 and following. That's what Peter is referring to, that final time, that final time. Peter is speaking of the second future occurrence, which brings us to a final point. Look at the middle of 3.10. This is the, what characterizes this final day of the Lord. Peter says, in the middle of 310, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. A complete incineration of the planet. That's why I've kept telling you this is a disposable planet to God. Atomic reaction. An uncreation of the world. Folks, he is taking us Ever since we got out of Eden, he's been taking us back. And that's the plan, how the whole plan unfolds. And it may seem like a long time to you and me, but to God it is not a long time. But this physical and natural earth will be consumed. And that is his point. And, 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 that's, and that, here's the point. This is the real point. The bigger point is this is the way the apostles apostolic teaching goes whenever they talk about eschatology that's what this is eschatology the doctrine of last things 
And when it comes to the final day of the Lord, they don't want it to be just an intellectual exercise to us. They want these future realities to impact us in the present. They want us to, yes, know about these things, but they also want them to affect the way we live now. And that is the reason verse 11 says, are you still in 2 Peter 3? 11 says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So you know all that. Now you feel smarter. Peter says, don't get over yourself. He says, how shall you then live? How shall you then live? That's what really, really matters. And, and that's what we'll talk about next week. That's what this whole final section is about. How shall we live now? It's interesting, I've been reading a book by John Piper who does not hold to our view, all of our views on this. But John Piper does have an excellent section on how shall we then live. He says in there, go to work and go to church. I said, well, you can't say it better than that. What were the Thessalonians doing in light of the second coming? They were quitting their jobs. They were being idle. They were eating other people's bread. They were being lazy. He says, go to work. Piper said, only Piper, go to work. And go to church. Go to church. Why? Let us, not, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Nobody in the world is going to encourage you in light of these truths, but the people in, your, in the church. We need the encouragement of each other. But if you look around us and see our world just collapsing in this, before this time, who knows what time we're in. That first day of the Lord could be any time, for sure. could be any time. So, we'll continue this Next time, now is a good time for us to celebrate our hope, to celebrate why we have so much hope, even in the face of all this future, these future realities, as we come around the communion table to remember what our Lord did for us. Father God, thank you so much for these truths this morning. May our hearts be encouraged as we see you've got everything under control. You've got a plan. Your word is clear. You've shown these things so clearly. They may be hard for us to understand. There's lots of mystery here, God, lots of mystery. It's bigger than our minds can contain, but we are so grateful to you that you are in control, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.